Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 115 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. And I'm your host, Andrew Coates. And back recently in December, it feels like it was forever ago. It's uh, just recent. Oh uh, I got to go to the Olympia in Las Vegas. Uh, Nick Shaw invited me to come down and hang out with the whole RP team. And then I went to the Olympia the second day and I got to hang out and, with and meet in person Dr. Crystal Guevara, uh, who is part of that team. And I'm excited. Uh, you were also a your presenter at RP. You present at the Olympia the next day. And uh, so I, I'm actually really excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to come on here. It's been a while since I've been able to chat with people and we're not wearing masks. It's, it's a really nice, it's a really nice time. Like I just feel like the last three years I've been, you know, just kind of in hiding with everybody else in the world. So it's really and, nice to see smiling faces. And, and I mean, you're, you're a doctor of osteopathic medicine. You're, you're a doctor, right? And so yeah. you, you also have a whole bunch of other uh, education as well. I mean, there's a master's in organic chemistry. You're the team physician for the U S figure skating uh, and you're also now officially part of Renaissance Periodization, right? Correct. That is correct. That's cool. So it's great to have you. Like I said, so your talk at the RP Summit really went into a lot of stuff to do with uh, training through injury, injury management, recovery, that stuff. And, and I thought, you know, we haven't done an episode on that particular theme. And I'm trying to stay a little more themed lately and going forward. Okay. So, you know, we can definitely say a lot of surface level stuff in our industry about again, training around injuries and recovery, you hear a lot of these sort of surface level platitudes. So I wanted to dive deeper. And, you know, from your experience, what was really important, what is really important to consider when we're working with our athletes, uh, general population clients who are dealing with injury? I think the biggest thing to keep in mind when you are talking about injury is um, keeping the patient or the client's sort of long and short-term goals in mind when you are having that conversation. And additionally, really having a frank conversation about trade-offs, especially when you move into the higher level athletes where you have the Olympics on the line, you have football championships on the line and trying to find that balance between what are you comfortable with saying or giving a medical advice as a physician? And also keeping in mind you have the athlete, but as you move higher up with the um, you know professional level, you have the coaches, you have stakeholders, you have sponsors, you have donors to think about, you have athletic trainers, and all those people kind of it becomes more of a management, you know, you have to like manage all these outside forces, but really it's, it's, it's a conversation between you and the athlete, but it's hard sometimes with, uh, with um, professional sports, having to kind of, kind of take all that background noise and kind of, uh, kind of keep the, you know, focus on what is best for the athlete, not necessarily trying to please all these other people. We can go upstream for a second with this too, because you know before you get to the actual injury, oftentimes it's the navigation between you know the the different coaches. I, I think MMA athletes are probably one of several really good examples where you have your skills coach, you have your strength and conditioning coach, and you know thoughts on communication and alignment there, so that way we don't have competing goals from coaches, which ends up overworking and under recovering the athlete. The big thing is, um, it, it is a communication, uh, you know, is super important. Um, the, and I find that, um, if you're just really honest, cause uh, I've been fortunate enough where the coaches and the staff have all been, have take, you know, taken my advice, uh, and seriously, like I haven't had too much pushback in that regard. Um, so if you can, at the very least focus and I find that also what's really helpful is focusing on what can the athlete do versus what, you know, what is not allowed, um, at least sort of, you know, putting that like negative and positive, san you know, sandwich together, like when you're giving compliments to people, just always keeping in mind, like, yes, they can't train their hamstrings because they pulled it, but we can still work on upper body, they can still throw. Um, I find that 
coaches are a lot more and, uh, you know, uh, strength and conditioning is a lot more receptive to that type of language versus, uh, yeah, they, they got injured. They can't, they're going to be out for six weeks and that's just sort of the end of it. I think this is maybe one of the most important things. And I have a piece that I'm writing right now. And if all goes according to plan, it will be published. And it's really a program around the theme of cross-education. And if you want to, I can let you explain what cross-education is. But it's really about making sure that, A, we, we, we mitigate any regression from time loss due to injury. Uh, it, it's not necessarily about like making crazy progress. But it's also about keeping someone in because, I mean, obviously athletes are athletes. That's one thing. They have to recover to come back to play. But when we're dealing with general population, some of the greatest benefits of exercise are simply the the physical and mental health benefits of getting in the gym, working out, be it the blood pressure, the blood sugar, the, you know, the the feel good mood stuff. So you want to explain that a little bit? In terms of um, the... Yeah. And again, I think with the general population, I think that is that kind of message of making sure that we can at least focus and find something that they that person can do is going to be of the utmost importance, uh, especially with the general population, because I find that if it's not what they and there's definitely some um definitely overlap between athletes and general population. But if it's not the one thing that I really enjoy doing, then I'm just going to, you know, sit on the couch and do nothing and sort of wallow in my misery, my injury misery and feel terrible about myself. And it's really important that we have that conversation of, look, even if it's just getting, showing up to the gym, doing 10 pushups or something and going home, that is better than sitting on the couch and, you know, having a net binging on Netflix, um, you know, just staying active. So, I, you know, I, and I think it's all always how you word those things and really just trying to maintain some sort of positivity, because if you aren't giving that to them, they will take that negative in, you know, that injury and they're going to run with it. There's also something else to it. I think you could probably articulate this really well is the idea that just rest and not doing anything with injured tissue is actually the the best thing, which it's not. Do you want to explain why it's actually not the answer? So the, so in um, great question, um, I know that, so for very acute injuries, rest for, oof, you know, even for a simple ankle sprain, maybe a day or two tops. The thing about the injured tissue is you actually want to give it some sort of stimulus um, because you want that tissue to respond to that stimulus and actually start repairing and growing. And if you let it just sort of sit there, it's not going to do, you know, tissue is a very dynamic process. It, and so with recovery, injury recovery in particular, you want to make sure you are riding that fine line between uh, providing enough of a mechanostimulus, you know, um, a stimulus to where the tissue can actually respond and grow and organize um, versus not doing anything and just letting it atrophy and do, do whatever. So it's all about if you don't use it, you lose it. And I mentioned cross-education earlier, and I got into the research on this stuff. I've worked with a lot of clients over the years, uh, torn biceps, uh, broken ankles, broken tib-fib, broken wrists, you name it. Like this is shockingly not, uh, shockingly common. I've got an old client who I saw recently, she broke her wrist. And so I'm like, here, let me send you an advanced copy of this this program. And there's a whole bunch of really cool research on immobilized limbs. It's been both done. Usually they're immobilizing a forearm or a leg and they get people to train the the healthy limb and in the control group where they don't have them do nothing, we do see atrophy of strength and muscle tissue, right? That's normal. But in the group that trained the healthy limb, we actually saw the uh, better preservation of strength and muscle thickness. And this has been replicated numerous times in studies. So not only are we getting the benefits of staying active, all the physiological mental health benefits, and keeping that person in the habit, but we can actually do a lot more to preserve 
uh, prevent against those losses. And so yeah. I've got, I got a big piece that I've been working on, like I said, coming out soon. If anybody's interested in that, just just message me and keep your eyes open, and hopefully I'll, I'll get it out soon with the, with the with the publication that I'm working with. So yeah. any any further notes on that? You know, as far as when I kind of took uh, peruse through the literature and when I was trying to prepare for the talk on, you know, uh, as far as like protocols go, I, you know, I'm really excited to hear more, read more about what you have in store as far as writing goes, because when I looked through the literature, I was not too excited about what they had, because a lot of times they tested one rep maxes for on injured tissue. And I'm just like, why are we, why are we still here? Like, I understand one rep maxes are a very important, like they're easy to sort of gauge and use in studies and whatnot. But um, it just uh, the, the literature I found was not very specific to the sport that I was talking about mm. and the crowd that I was talking about. It was a lot of team sport uh, things, which would be great if, you know, RP and team full ROM was all about, you know, soccer. Um, or football, American football. Um, as far as hypertrophy goes, I just didn't find that there was a whole lot of stuff that I could, literature that I could kind of tie back in, um, which is a little sort of, you know, makes me a little uncomfortable to get up there and talk about that. But <laughs> I, from a practical standpoint, sometimes you do have to just go with what has what has been done out there, not necessarily in a controlled scientific setting, yeah. but what seems to make the most sense. And until somebody come publishes something that says, actually, you guys are doing it all wrong. This is how to approach it. I, I wish I had a better answer, um, but I can always wait until somebody comes and tells me like, you're full of crap. <laughs> Let's do it this way. <laughs> I'll send you what I've got anyway. Uh, one of the big things about it is it's it's tactics. So, for example, let's say you've got someone who wants to train legs but has an immobilized forearm. They're in a cast. So oftentimes, or maybe there's a shoulder injury. So getting your arms around a regular barbell may not actually yeah. work well. Certainly gripping something like a barbell or dumbbells for something like a Romanian deadlift doesn't work. So honestly, the best thing in the world for this is a safety bar. It's literally magic. Yeah. So you all of a sudden, you get a safety bar squat. You probably aren't lunging with dumbbells, so you reverse lunge or, or Bulgarian squat with a safety bar. And safety bar good mornings can actually be a really good substitute in for Romanian deadlift. So a lot of that is just being able to train the lower body and, and not having whatever your limitation is being able to grip onto something, prevent your training there. And then the other side of it too is the stuff that usually these studies, you know, they're often six-week studies and they, they pick sort of a they're always sort of weird how they're constructed, but consistently they seem to observe this effect where, you know, if the contra, you know, the, the contralateral limb is trained, then, and, and it also, there's a study, uh, I can't remember the exact citation, I know I have it in the article, where the magnitude of the training intensity seems to also have an effect as well. So there's, mm -hmm. there's at least a little bit of uh, you know data there or research there that yeah. points to the fact that, you know, if we train reasonably hard now, that brings back to something else your thoughts on the balance of we have limited resources for recovery and those recovery resources are now being taxed actually to heal an injury. So if we are able to continue to do some training, how do you get people to navigate just the volume and the intensity? So that way they're not competing for the resources they need to actually heal that injury. I know some, I had actually had that brought up as a question. Um, when I, I gave pretty much the same talk in Australia and somebody had actually asked about, well, you know, is the volume going to be the same? Is the intensity going to be the same? Like, you know, if I do have like a broken wrist and I'm able to do, you know, the same squats, same, whatever, just, uh, you know, leg press or something like that. How is that all in there? Um, and to be honest, the biggest problem and that I've the biggest issue hurdle that I've run into with athletes and recreational athletes is actually not whether or not I need to adjust that volume to recover. It really is just getting them back into the swing of things. I can't tell you how many times I've had athletes be like, oh yeah, my wrist is broken. So I'm just not going to do my strength and conditioning workout, or I'm just not going to show up to practice. And these are pretty high level athletes. And so I find myself you know, I, I don't think I've ever actually ever run into an issue where I've had to 
manage or really educate somebody on what they can and cannot do in the weight, like what volumes are tolerable that, you know, but you do bring up a great point and you're not the first person to bring up that point. I just clinically, I haven't, that hasn't been a problem. That's, that's nice. Cause you're right. We come up with all these sort of theoretical concerns. <laughs> I, I suspect as well, like it's, it's old bodybuilding lore. Well, if something's hurt, well, you go and you train, let's say you've got a leg injury. Well, cool. It's a really good opportunity to bring up your, your back, your rear delts, your chest, right? Or if you've got an upper body injury, cool. Your legs yeah. and your calves are lagging. We'll just throw everything at those and train those really hard. And my guess is if you have to dial back your training, like anecdotally, I would say, if you have to dial back you know, your upper body volume of training because of, of an injury that's limiting that, you could probably throw everything at your legs and you still can probably recover from the leg training and the injury. My guess would be that that seems to be, uh, that would be my guess. Uh, I, you know, I wish I even had a clinical anecdote where I, I run into that issue. I just, I haven't, um, when I, yeah, when I hurt my, when I hurt my knee, um, pretty bad, um, and had to, uh, scrap the squats, um, I, leg press was still in the, you know, picture and still doing seven sets with a very short rest break in between because one, because, uh, I think I just didn't, I was running out of time. I didn't have two hours as a medical resident to talk, you know, tolerate that, but I seemed to be, to do fine and recovered fine from it. So I, as far as, you know, how am I going to, you know, make sure that my injury and my recovery, you know, are they competing for resources? I didn't seem to run into that issue personally. And I suppose if you're also, if you're doing this during a medical residency, I'm probably not worried about most other people unless, you know, you get, you get those people who are really chronically underslapped or, you know, maybe they've got young kids, stuff like that. I mean, there's probably going to come a point and I, I suspect it, it's the same rules that we'd always apply. You just, you just use your best judgment and intuition and you listen to your body, you see what's going on. If you feel like you're breaking down and you know, you're dealing with, you, you're under recovered while well, you, you fucking dial it back a little bit. Yeah. If the next session you're, you're not at least matching the same reps from the previous week, or, you know, you just notice all of a sudden you can bear your warm up seems like a grind. Maybe it's time to dial it back, you know? So same sort of kind of things that I would, you know, normally use to gauge my progress in training within a mesocycle. <laughs> You're also lucky too. I mean, you have some of the smartest people in the world on your team around you, Dr. <laughs> James Hoffman. And, and I'm trying to remember, I, it was, I think Mel Davis, Dr. Mel Davis was also on the book, the, the RP recovery book. I think James mm -hmm. was lead on that one, right? So, you know, yeah. that, that's pretty much the resource out there on that. So guys, if you want to do more, just literally go into the, the Renaissance organization books. There's a ton of good stuff in there. And imagine like going through all this stuff while having Dr. Mike Isertel literally being the person closest <laughs> on hand, probably you let him guide the process, by the way, or did you tell him to fuck off and leave you alone? You do your own thing. You know, it's a, uh, it, it's been really great. I, you know, we've been together for what, nine years now. Um, I think in the very beginning, I was very much adamant, like go F off. I'm going to do like read on my own because I didn't want to be, you know, I, Funny enough, I was like, oh gosh, he's a fitness influencer. He's like big into fitness. And I'm just this person who recreational lifter, I like to stay, I like to stay active, but I'm not, I wasn't competitive at all at that point. And so I was very clear with him that I wasn't trying to be a fitness celebrity and I wanted to do my own reading. And if I had any questions, I will ask him, but like, back off of my diet and training. <laughs> um, but I think now, I think definitely when I hurt my knee, uh, I did lean onto him very heavy for heavily for support um, because I was in that like depths of despair. The squats were my favorite exercise. I was sort of a power lifter still at the time. So, uh, you know, it meant a lot and that was my best lift. So man, it was a huge blow. And I think um, I definitely leaned in on him and sort of cried on his shoulder every now and again, but he definitely made sure that to remind me like, Hey, you can still do leg presses. You can still find these other exercises you can do. 
So do them <laughs> and, and move on with it. So, um, you know, I, I do bounce ideas off of him every now and again, but for the most part, uh, I think our roles within RP and within fitness are different enough that I, I don't, you know, honestly, I don't have as many conversations with him about training, I guess, um, maybe long-term goals, but not necessarily the day in day out. I'm not always like bombarding him with the whole MRV, MEV, you know, stimulus to fatigue ratio. I, I just feel like I hear enough of it in the background that <laughs> just like, all right, here we go again. Another yeah, debate. If you guys didn't pick up on that. So that's, that's, and I didn't lead with that because I, I don't think that's like the most important thing, but yeah, like you've been married to Dr. Mike Isertel for a while and he's been on my podcast a few times. So pe people are familiar with Mike, obviously he's super smart and super funny. Um, so I'm guessing a lot of those conversations are probably more about Dragon Ball Z than they are about training, right? <laughs> you get, did you get oh. some of that stuff with them too? I do. I, I don't watch. I mean, I'll watch some certain clips. Uh, you know, when we kind of um, we were actually watching, uh, was it Physical 100 on Netflix recently? Definitely check it out. It's like Korea's 100 top athletes, fitness influencers, national team athletes, and they're all competing to be uh, the fittest person. But like some like there are things that are involving strength there's some that involve combat so we just got into that lately i uh, i i honestly need to make more time to do this sort of stuff because i really don't shut off the work very well no. <laughs> but uh, like uh like alex hormozy talks about it's like it's it's build season so there's a lot of stuff i'm trying to work on with upcoming speaking stuff so uh, yeah. i will learn to take more time for those sort of things and I never did get into the hardcore anime stuff. I remember watching Akira when I was young and I have it on DVD, but I haven't rewatched it. So that's good stuff. Okay, totally, totally got off topic there, but that's all good. Um, what about, you know, you've, you've alluded to definitely managing the the psychological, the emotional side of people who are dealing with injuries. I mean, we as coaches, we also get sidelined with injuries too, right? We, we deal with them yeah. too. Any advice for us and that'll trickle down into the client on on how to navigate their emotional experience with the injury you know uh as a coach i i guess the big thing is uh how do you ever notice i think one of the questions that i have to try and help with that is as a coach do you how do how do most clients sort of present after an injury? Do they still show up? Do they sort of like pretend like they don't like do the, you know, ghost, like kind of like don't show up and kind of will drop off the face of the earth for a little while, or will they actually go come to you for like, Hey, I hurt this. <laughs> and I think we've all seen both sort of examples right? and yeah. like a few that, a lot of the ones that I work with that inspired the article that I'm working on, especially with the training program, like the tactics. I mean, this mm -hmm. is stuff I've been doing with clients for years to get yeah. around injuries. But again, like the safety bar is just one of these things. There's a whole yeah. bunch of other stuff where let's say I got a guy at a boot cast. All right, cool. I can still stick you in a leg press and have you do it with yeah. your leg. Yeah. We're probably not going to be, there's no walking lunging going to happen there. Right. But then again, uh, I'll give you guys a good example. So, uh, my friend Tony Gentilcore, he's a well-known strength coach and writer in the industry. And so me and my pal Luca Hosovar were both doing Bul Bulgarian blood squats, but supported. So safety bar on our shoulders, hands on the safety spotter arms. And we're yeah. both like posting it up and going a little heavier and a little heavier. So Tony Gentilcore is watching this and he's got a fully ruptured Achilles tendon that he's recovering from. So Tony does this setup, except he loads up and he keeps getting heavier and heavier just with his good leg. So his, his ruptured Achilles is literally on the back leg and he's fine. And he's able to do, I think that's three plates, like over 300 pounds on his good leg, which is ridiculous, right? But if you understand the movement, you actually can load very heavy, but it's just all these examples of there's so much stuff that you literally can do. And then if you get really creative, let's say you've got someone with a broken wrist. Well, you start attaching things at the elbow and you use, you know, some sort of like strap to get around even um, you know, having a grip on the stuff. So there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff. That I think most coaches are be like, oh yeah, I've done this stuff. We all will work in our lifetime with your regular clients 
who are limited because they they broke something, they tore something, something's hurt. They, how many times has someone walked in on a given day? Hey, cool, we can't train this because this hurts. All right, well, we got to get creative. We have tons of experience with this stuff. And this was just packaging it up in such a way, plus digging into kind of the research. So I like this stuff and I find finding these sort of solutions fun. But that's, and I think maybe part of the answer is we give them stuff, hey, there's hope. There's stuff you can do. I think the other part, and um, I completely forgot about this. Um, I think there's a huge hole in the healthcare sort of team. Um, like I had mentioned, professional athletes, collegiate athletes, they have the whole strength and conditioning department. They have PTs, they have athletic trainers. When you are a recreational weekend warrior, you know, somebody who's not, uh, you know, signed with a team, you kind of have to navigate around this healthcare system that's even confusing for myself as a doctor. I find it very frustrating. So a lot of people, some people don't know that primary care sports medicine docs exist. People, you know, they think that most of them are orthopedic surgeons who just want to, you know, do cut and replace fixed bones and whatnot. And I remember, you know, thinking about the whole post-injury process, like we send people to physical therapy and they're really good at that acute kind of injury management, but then what happens afterwards? And I think there is this huge space of like fitness trainers and online coaches and in-person coaches who uh, are, are very much kind of where do they fit in? And I find that, you know, who, who is doing that part after the PT? Cause it seemed very much seemed like, you know, okay, so we have PT, we have these rehab exercises. When do we get people off of these rehab exercises and where do they go next? Do you just, you know, here you go, you're, you're done with PT. You have graduated, like just take, go back to the gym and take it easy and be done with it. Um, it what is like so a lot of your talk was about this so, like so what are some of the important things here i mean i'm assuming overcoming fear of re-injuries is one of them what else like how do you help fill that gap well what you know at certain points uh when people do come back to me post-injury i actually end up even as a primary care doc will end up sort of taking a look at their mesocycle and like, what does your program look like? Give me a piece of paper. And the physician doctor's visit is spent like going over that. Um, I, I wish, you know, and I think the hard part is I don't have the time or the ability. Well, I mean, I do have the ability, but like the time to actually go with them into the gym and physically watch them do their exercises. So it, I do also feel very limited as to what I can provide um, other than this seems reasonable. Let me know how it goes. So I think uh, we need to do a better job of kind of bridging that gap between medical professionals and coaches or coaches, uh, you know, personal trainers that like, what happened, like, where are we going to fit people in after the PT so we can keep them exercising, keep them in the gym um, and do it safely, but also, you know, push them. And I mean, in my personal experience, it does come from experience as a coach and kind of knowing the individual relationship you have with that person, your relationship with yeah. that person is, is a really essential part is knowing graduating them through you know progressive low but not trying to push them through one rep max and obviously knowing the fact all right we're dealing with this pre-existing injury now and that you know yeah. a lot of people will say it I, I i trust you'll agree with this that the the most reliable predictor of future injury is past injury right so we have to be a little yeah. at least conscientious of that and like i said i think we're re restoring that person's confidence and i think we've all worked with those clients who are just so goddamn fearless and balls to the wall that they're actually you really kind of got to put the brakes on them but then we definitely get the other ones that are absolutely terrified again of it uh in particular you deal with anybody who's had a lower back injury and it's almost like it lives in their brain that they're so sensitized to the pain that they're they're super scared um any other any other advice for coaches trying to navigate that sort of thing like the fear you know, I, I think one thing, definitely acknowledge it and acknowledge the person's experience uh, with fear or with fear and the, the pain. I know that pain and the 
the pain itself and the fear surrounding that exercise is very much, uh, they're very much interrelated. And sometimes you can't get away from either one of the two. But I, I also find that the uh, by dismissing it, um, people very much will now have a negative experience on top of I already feel like garbage and I'm already in this negative headspace. So I feel like anytime where you can really just make sure to not say anything that's uh, too dismissive, um, but uh, trying to negotiate with, you know, okay, well, if we can't go too heavy, can we at least do a body weight? You know, I'm thinking about like good mornings and low back, uh, you know, that seems to be a very like, okay, the high risk exercise, I've got low back pain, you're trying to help me, you know, force me into this position. Um, meeting them where they are. And if it's, you know, if it's only doing a quarter rep with no weight on the bar, no bar at all, then, then we gotta, that's how we gotta play it. And we gotta meet them where they are and then slowly work on pushing that envelope really, uh, once they get there, um, making sure to be very positive and congratulating them and hey man this is this is progress this is better than where we were an hour ago and and going from there because especially for those kinesiophobic uh kind of oh uh oh <laughs> no i i oh i so agree with you there i actually was making notes and I just go on like the, the oh, whole no. <laughs> especially for the people who are very scared to move like they're very kinesiophobic it's um it's always meeting them where they're at and it's going to be a negotiation process from start to finish but i think as long as you acknowledge that you know the pain is real i get it everybody and everybody's pain tolerances and how they feel the pain is different um you have especially for chronic pain patients it's, it's a daily struggle for them. So if you can even move that needle over just a millimeter, that's better than, than where we were when we started. And if that's, and if that's what it takes, and if that's, you know, kind of where we're at, you got to be okay with that. And I got excited because like we, we see this theme coming up now with kinesiophobia a lot, and it ends up sometimes in the middle of this ideological battle between this this group of physical therapists who I think are very well intentioned who tend to police the things that the rest of the industry says and and what they interpret as you know creating barriers to access or or fear around movement. Um, one of the common arguments is, is sort of like, do you have to maintain a neutral spine? I think there's flaws on on every end of that whole argument, right? There's yeah. that's a tricky one. I'm not going to try to dissect it. But I, I don't like when people in our industry, especially people with sort of the physio backgrounds, actually use a lot of what we would call kinesiophobic language, making people sound like they're broken, they're dysfunctional, et cetera. You're setting those people up to believe this stuff and to be very fearful of movement. So in the in the neutral spine argument, I think one of the important considerations is it really is important for people to be able to bend and flex their spine in everyday movement and to be able to load it. I do not believe, and there is no research that gets up into like heavy, heavy weight with a rounded back. That research doesn't exist. Um, there's research I think that gets as heavy as about a 12 kilo weight, which one mm -hmm. side uses as an argument to say, there's no evidence that it's dangerous to lift with a rounded back. I don't think that that threshold is enough to be able to then turn around and say, this is conclusive with, for you know, very, very heavy loading. Although I think that the load itself is actually a key parameter in what increases the injury risk and your ability to control that load. I digress. But we want those people to be able to, without fear, be able to bend down to the ground and, you know, like pick up my 14 pound cat or pick up a child or, you know, groceries. And, we're, and it's ridiculous to train people to think, okay, we got to oh, set up brace like we're going to do a, you know, a, a, a like a, a meat powerlifting squat uh, <laughs> if we're going to bend over and pick up a small object. That's ludicrous, right? <laughs> so any, yeah. any, any more thoughts there? Well, I, I will say is so, like as somebody who um, I was not always a fit like fit person. I was not always a competitive powerlifter. I was not always, you know, exercise kind of came and went and sort of ebbs and flows in my life. And there have been times where I've been completely sedentary. I was a cigarette smoker. I was about two hundred pounds, untrained, um, and the uh, the 
the just the load from the weight alone would give me back problems and just the um i couldn't like moving just felt like more of an effort so yes i completely agree in that if we don't we need to do a better job of making sure that people who are afraid to move that we meet them where they're at and try and move that needle forward because it's this, it feels like a downward spiral because getting back on the saddle and getting back into the gym after oof, two to three years of smoking cigarettes, being completely sedentary and um, eating nothing but junk food. Um, boy, that was a rough road. Just even quitting the smoking alone was a, and getting back into the gym, my lungs felt like they were going to die. Um, <laughs> and just, yeah. So the, yes, there are things, yes, there are injury risks to being active and lifting weights, but man, the, the <laughs> alternative to do nothing and to kind of, you know, end up with sarcopenia with no muscle mass, fat, and extra, you know, carrying extra fat and not being strong enough to do activities of daily living, boy, it's a, that, you know, I will take the other side of that. I will take the injury risk with lifting any day. Me too. And I think that's a, a message we're seeing more and more of. It's like the other risks really suck. And it's the concept of, all right, well, which would you rather the discomfort now or yeah. all of that really, really off or increasing the risk of those awful discomforts later on. And we're, we're the choir. We, we understand it. We're preaching. Everybody listening understands this stuff. So the trick is, all right, how do we create messaging that reaches the people who either don't know or don't care? I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think as a physician, it's um, trying to get people to care is... I think the hardest, I think what may has worked for me in the past as a physician is trying to figure out what, what people are excited about. Cause a lot of people, cause when you tell somebody, okay, you're diabetic now, you have high blood pressure, um, you know, you have high cholesterol, here are all these pills, um, I've tried the the method of, you know, if we work, give you these pills now, and if we work on your lifestyle now, in addition to this, we can get you off of these pills. Like you don't have to take insulin. It's a death sentence. It, you know, it's just a real pain in the butt to have to like, you know, swallow all these pills every single day. I find that some people are motivated by that because not a lot of people don't want to take any medication whatsoever. And I, you know, at a certain point, it's like your blood pressure is 200 over 110. Like, I'm not letting you walk out of here without a prescription unless you tell me to go F off. But um, a lot of times people, especially early on with the general population, I find that the outcome results are motivating to them in the short term, which is, you know, Again, it has its pros and cons, especially if, you know, they want to look a certain way. It's hard for to really sell them on, you know, falling in love with the process. But in a 15, 20 minute doctor's visit, if that is what, you know, is going to motivate you or if getting the surgery is going to motivate you, then, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll work with it. Uh, you know, it's better than nothing. So you got to find what's going to, what's going to really razz them, what, what their interests are. So. I agree with that. I think you know, there's a lot of research on humans are more motivated by fear of loss than they are of benefit of gain. Mm -hmm. I, one of the tacks I always try to take is again, develop enough of a relationship. And again, I, I work with gen pop clients who self-select and want to train with me. So there's sort of that advantage versus like the medical setup where it, it's not quite the same dynamic most yeah. of the time. Yeah. But if I can get someone to enjoy spending time with me and ease them into the process where that like they notice that they feel better yeah. to a greater magnitude than they they find that it sucks, then oftentimes they're just motivated because, hey, this feels good. Plus, I'm getting all these benefits. So that's my approach to all this stuff. But I know yeah. that at least in the medical system, we don't necessarily have that time. We don't have that runway to work with them. Right. Yeah. Now, I... Uh... I think at one point I got really, I got a little frustrated and 
Um, and I don't know if this is necessarily a great approach. I've had some pretty, I've had pretty good rapport with all of my patients, like a pretty good working relationship. So I think at one point, uh, I had a 30 year old male who had really bad diabetes first diagnosis. And I was like, do you enjoy intercourse? Because, you know, 10 years from now, I just looked dead in the eye. Like, do you enjoy intercourse? Uh, because, you know, 10 years from now, if your diabetes gets, remains this uncontrolled, you know, all the blood vessels, diabetes ruins all of the blood vessels in your body. Your penis requires blood flow in order for it to work. I don't want you to have to come back to me 10 years from now asking me for Viagra because things don't work down there. So let's get this sugar fixed so we can avoid that moving on. That seemed to work in that one instance, my N equals one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, the, almost the freedom of expression to, you know, to have people self-select a different messaging, which is why I'm also a little hesitant about like the fitness industry likes to police, you know, like anything that comes off as tough love. I, I'm more of the mindset of like an empathetic approach and and, and try to yeah. create something that people will, will be drawn to. But I think there is a certain subsection of the population who will literally be woken up by something that's a little <laughs> bit more blunt and unvarnished. And I think it's okay to have that stuff. I, I I don't overtly believe in fat shaving and I'm not endorsing it at all, but I actually do think there are some people out there who literally will gravitate to that. And if that shakes them out of it and ends up in a, in a yeah. positive thing, okay. I want to walk a very fine line with that one. It's really more about yeah. just let people find the message that works best for them. Now, I mean, here's a question I wanted to ask too. Uh, because of the frustrations with the way the medical system works, is that part, I mean, obviously you literally have this like gateway into the fitness industry, you know, through, through Mike and, and your relationship with mm -hmm. the RP, but was there something else there with the frustration about how the medical system works that made you more interested in becoming, because in, in the fitness industry and being aligned with it, you're more at the forefront, like you're, you're a bit more further upstream, if that makes sense. Is that appealing to you? What happened there? You know, I, the, I think the biggest thing that happened was COVID happened from, a from a, you know, system standpoint, it just sort of seemed like, man, I, I felt like a cog in the wheel and all my patients also felt like a cog in the wheel and trying to navigate, how am I going to maximize my time with these patients because I don't, because I actually gave a crap about them. So I wanted to make sure that they felt comfortable talking. They knew who I was. They felt comfortable talking to me about anything, you know, and everything whatsoever, but also, you know, some people have more complex medical issues than others. Um, and I felt like man, I just, I can't do it in the time allotted because of the way the reimbursement system works. Mm -hmm. um, and then throw in sort of COVID with a, a bunch of all of that. So there was just mandatory testing um, weekly. So trying to end with the um, hiring freezes that had gone on. So people weren't hiring, but they expected you to do all this extra work that was involved with COVID. I just sort of burnt out. Mm -hmm. uh, it, so a traditional practice just didn't really seem all that appealing after a while. And I think COVID was the cherry on top for that. So I needed to take a step back and kind of see what I wanted to do, what projects I wanted to work on that didn't necessarily involve working directly with patients. And that was a hard trade-off to make because I actually really enjoyed my time working with athletes. Yes, I do work with U.S. figure skating, but it's, you know, a very limited capacity. I'll travel with them to certain events, but it's not, uh, it's not in the same like day in, day out seeing you know, the daily progress uh, of athletes. Um, so uh, yeah, the, just the whole, the way the whole reimbursement system set up, it's just not very, it's hard to navigate even as a doctor. Um, I don't find it, you know, having to see X amount of patients in order to make X amount of money, a very, uh, it's, it's a recipe for burnout to be it's honest.
it's a perfect analogy though for the trainer experience and it, it's I, you can look at mike and nick where they built rp I mean, these are a couple of dudes who like to lift weights and, and we're personal trainers that have built one of the biggest, most influential brands in, in fitness. And I mean, sure, there's sort of a niche to it, but they have more reach into a, a broader population. And Mike and Nick would be poorly served to be continuing to work with a lot of clients one on one. They've taken all that all that information, all this research backed stuff, and they've built books and a library of videos and, and the, the templates and the app and they've scaled their ability to help just that many more people hire coaches underneath them. So, I mean, I, I'm guessing this is probably very appealing. First of all, you have that gateway in there, you have their infrastructure and is the plan to scale and build resources that merges that intersection between fitness and health to where you can help more people. Is, is that kind of the plan? I think there has been some, you know, that has been a thought in the back of my mind for quite a while now, given the um, other types of projects that are sort of coming through the pipeline. I know that RP has the certification course. So to be quite honest, my most of my time and resources has been with working in that space. Um, and because I you know, want to make sure that that project gets its due diligence. That's actually been where the majority of my time has been spent um, versus uh, trying to answer those bigger questions. I think it'd be really great to have some sort of, you know, put something in the in the works to try and bridge that gap between the medical space and um kind of online fitness coaching space and where that is going to end up. I just haven't really, I've thought about it, but I have definitely kind of sort of put it aside to try and kind of work to make sure the, our, the certification course is, you know, really, really, uh, the best, the best out there. So. And I, I was lucky I was asked to beta test parts of it too. So Ooh. I got to see it. It was Ooh. at the time I had to sign an NDA. So I was allowed to say <laughs> now, now it's okay for me to say it. Uh, and again, it was one of the reasons why I got to come down and hang out with, uh, with all you guys and, uh, and see Mike again and, uh, mm -hmm. and James again. Um, I, I want to highlight something for anyone listening to you can tell someone who's very scientific um, and I've got to find a way to say this. Someone who I think you can really trust when it comes to evidence-based stuff, because Crystal, you've all you've been very hesitant to speak in anything that sounded absolute throughout this, right? Which which I notice, and you guys are noticing, it's it's not a lack of confidence in anything. It's just the fact that you know I can tell that you're you're unwilling to make very bold statements where maybe it's there's not necessarily a ton of body of evidence to back it up. Whereas what we're seeing more often now is we're seeing people with PhDs, I won't name any names, but they're saying a lot of stuff that quite frankly, they, they sound very confident about, but it just, it's not backed up. So I just want to highlight that I picked up on that. So that tells me, you know, everybody listening, like go follow Crystal. Oh, <laughs> you're someone we can actually trust about this, like Renaissance Periodization as a, and an entity, it's individuals, but the sum of its parts has been one of my favorite resources. So oh. where can they find you on social media online? Oh, uh, I'm mostly on Instagram. Uh, my Twitter, I usually just use to follow, to catch up on sports. Um, so, I, uh, my Crystal. Um, so that's my Instagram handle is where I mostly do my stuff. Yeah. It, I find it very difficult to try and make those one, like, cause I see a lot of one liner, the kind of, you know, clickbaity reels. And so, man, uh, and I've, followed people for over 10 years now on social media and kind of followed where people's journeys have gone. And boy, I, you know, I wish I had the balls to kind of, you know, say, make some sort of, some of those bold claims, but even with using language and trying to figure out what's going to motivate people, I don't even, it's all an individualized approach. So, you know, I, I can't, it's, I find it very difficult for me to make those one-liners um, that's going to really appeal to people. I think you do a really great job of posting those types of things. I'm like, man, that sounds really good. Like, these are the types of things that I wish I could say, like, say out there. So I, you know, just want hats off to you and, you know, your writing abilities, because I definitely, 
I find that you have a really great balanced approach to it where everything you say is not like a clickbaity kind of bold. <laughs> yeah, I can't do that either because like, it, doesn't, it doesn't align with my integrity. So I am trying to walk a fine line between, all right, this stuff's really, I'm hoping helpful, but not so goddamn light and fluffy that it's it's cliche or useless because I can't do that either. But yeah. uh, I have fun with it. And it's it, it's a practice, right? So anybody listening who follows my social media, it's literally just a practice of having done it for a while. And I mean, one of the coolest things is what really seeded the initial growth of my account was was Dr. Mike keep, kept sharing my stuff on his wall and kept yeah. driving followers by way. Like it probably nice. gave me 3,000 of the first, I started with like 3,000 anyway. So it's like, I'd say like, Three three thousand to thirty five hundred of the first seven thousand to get me to ten thousand was probably Mike's surges and just this consistency and I just picked up because I met Mike at a conference here in twenty seventeen in Edmonton where he came here spoke we had dinner and then when RP's team came to Calgary in twenty eighteen mm-hmm. and nineteen I went down I hung out with them so like there's a cluster of us now who are always trying to like get them back again for one of these things so we're working on it. We'll, we'll okay. see eventually I'm sure we'll bring bring you guys back but uh you know it's a community that I've really enjoyed and has treated me well for a long time so Mike's a great friend and uh like I said it was great to actually get to hang out with you because Nick Shaw's been on my podcast too but I got to meet Nick for the first time in person oh so awesome he's one of the nicest humblest guys in our world <laughs> Crystal this is wonderful thank you so much for coming on uh everybody listening uh guys thank you so much for tuning in please go check out more of what Crystal's doing and just plug into more RP stuff anyway, because I just believe in what they're doing. And if you're not following me on social media already, come on, guys, what are you doing? Like, shoot me a message there. I'll answer any question at all. And uh, if you are someone who's finding my podcast for the first time through Crystal's Media, well, we just talked about how Mike's been on a bunch of times. Uh, Nick was on not terribly long ago. I really do need to get Mel on eventually because tried before. Nice. And uh, Dr. James Hoffman was on quite a while ago as well. He's due for a trip back. So Thank you so much, Crystal. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Take care.